Welcome to episode 207 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Lovin. Today we caught up with Mills Baker. He is currently a product design manager at Quora. Before that, he was at Facebook. Before that, he did some other stuff that we didn't really talk about because we were too busy talking about other cool, interesting topics. Like epistemology. And other big words that you might not have ever heard before. He had to explain it to me, but he does explain that later in the episode. So spoiler alert, you'll learn what that means. This is one of our longer ones. So buckle up. If you're driving, because that's a safe thing to do. But also... Statistically speaking, you are driving or commuting in some way. So really just generally find a buckle. Buckle your brain up. This one gets pretty deep, pretty fast, cover lots of interesting things. And we hope you enjoy it. It was super fun to record. We're very glad that we got this all on tape. Before we get into it, though, huge thanks to our two sponsors that made this extra long recording possible. Do you have bad posture? Yes. This is a dumb question. <laughs> I think statistically speaking, and then this is the second time I've said statistically speaking in this intro. You got those stats on your mind. Statistically, yes. Designers especially are very bad at this. As Have you ever seen a picture of a designer? They are slouching I in am, an Aeron chair. A really beautiful chair, but they're like... I'm literally right now slunched over... Slunched? Slunched. This is a new posture innovation. Slunched Slunching. over my bowl of crunched up chip crumbs and my laptop <laughs> you are the stereotype i am all that is a stereotype we're moving you to the next frontier in posture which is standing whoa tell me more i'm standing you up right now we're here to tell you about the ready desk it's a standing desk that's going to help you fix your posture help you live longer because it turns out that standing more reduces your risk of heart disease cancer and diabetes it's also going to improve your focus and elevate your mood. Yes, I'm saying elevate. It's just like, it's right there. It's, it's just, you're standing up, so it elevates everything. Ready Desk is uh, a standing desk, if you hadn't picked that up. But the cool thing about it is that it's portable. You assemble it yourself in like a couple minutes because it's just made of a few pieces. And it's totally adjustable, so it's going to fit anybody that's using it. You put these planks at any slat, so it's at the right height for your keyboard, your mouse. Uh, you put your display on it, and they have a, a stand for your laptop. And it's this sturdy piece of hardware that you actually feel good putting your computer on and using throughout your day. And you can just move it off the table when you're done, so it's not going to take up a whole lot of space in your apartment or studio or house or wherever you might be. Uh, we have one, and we are totally blown away that how solid it feels. We have it stored away from when we're not using it. You can just drop it on the kitchen table whenever we need it. Or in the studio or wherever. Like, it fits on any table, really, and it's really great. It does the thing. It does the thing, and it's it not going to... It makes gonna, you stand. And it's not going to break the bank. The thing about standing desks is they're so... They're so heavy. Gosh dang expensive. You can easily spend $1,000 on a standing desk, uh, but you don't need to because the ready desk is going to solve all your problems with posture without breaking your bank. They cost just 150 bucks, but if you use the promo code DESIGN when you buy one today, you'll save 10 bucks on your order. To do that, you go to thereadydesk.com. That's thereadydesk.com. And use the ready desk. The ready desk. And use the promo code DESIGN. That'll save you 10 bucks uh, and tell them that we sent you, which we would appreciate. Um, Just like we appreciate ReadyDesk. And the cool thing is, if it's not for you, not the end of the world. They have a 100-day free return policy, uh, so you can give it a try. And if it's not for you, send it back. I want a 100-day free return on this ad read because you just keep going. Go to thereadydesk.com and use the promo code DESIGN. Thanks, ReadyDesk. 
second sponsor is our good friends from the great white north, Shopify. Shopify is a website that's helping over 400,000 merchants worldwide earn a living doing something they love or at least like, I hope. So first things first, if you want to sell something, use Shopify. I used it. I ran an apparel company for four years in college and use Shopify every single day. And it's awesome. Brian, what's the hottest thing in design accessories right now? Uh, Pins. Enamel pins, for sure. Who's the best ones? Super Team Deluxe. What's their website built on? Super Team Deluxe. No. Go deeper. Super. Shopify. Shopify Deluxe. It's built on Shopify. Shopify Deluxe. Uh, They're hosting absolutely awesome merchants uh, like Super Team Deluxe, who we love and you should buy pins from. What's even more awesome than all this is working for a company that enables all this to happen. Shopify is looking to hire. They need designers. They need content strategists. They need researchers and UX leads. They have over 180 in the UX org that's spread across five offices, uh, Ottawa, Toronto, Waterloo, Montreal, and San Francisco, and over 100 designers working on the core product itself, supporting all these merchants all around the world, building great experiences, including their recently released Polaris design system. They've got an amazing team full of friends of ours who are just incredible talents and they want you to join because, I mean, you probably are too. They need your help. They want you to apply. You can do that at shopify.com slash careers. If you want to get a better feel of what Shopify is all about, what they're working on, who the people are that are behind the product, you'll have to travel to Canada. Or you can just search Shopify UX on Instagram or on Twitter or on Medium. Or if you go to ux.shopify.com, I think that's just a wrapper for their Medium account. But basically, you can see all the blog posts written by designers who work there about the products they're shipping. It's an awesome resource. uh, And it gives you a good feel of what it might be like to uh, work at Shopify. Anyway, we've now given you two URLs. But the one that really matters is go to shopify.com slash careers and go get a job. Thanks so much to Shopify for sponsoring the show and making this episode possible. With that, let's get into episode 207 with Mills Baker. Okay, so my name is Mills. I'm a product design manager at Quora. I'm from New Orleans originally, which is the first piece of probably extraneous information that I tend to report about myself. Um, But it has been a major part of my life, uh, especially out here, frequent references to fly over America being such a phenomenon. uh, I do like to think a lot about how people back home use software and experience software. Um, I was a liberal arts major. I, you know, majored in uh, ultimately philosophy and religious studies with a degree from Louisiana State University. So that's a flex. Tiger. Hey, all right. Go Tigers. All right. I know one thing about Louisiana. (laughs) Yeah, no uh, sports. Yeah. Um, great football team. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I've heard of football. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> I'm familiar. This is the stripes on the ball, right? Yeah. Oh, laces. Whoops. Like the tiger. <laughs> um, I uh, worked in a completely unrelated industry. Had like a kind of a a life that was on its own trajectory, um, living in Louisiana. And then I, I had been writing on the internet since, uh, the late nineties. I think I had my first blog in 1997 and, uh, I met a girl through Tumblr and we hit it off and did long distance for a while. And then she had me come out here and I came out here with the plan to work in a call center or work in coffee shops, just figure it out until she wrapped up her life out here and we could go someplace affordable. And I wound up meeting someone in a coffee shop and one thing led to another. And ultimately I fell back into tech and design. I was first a PM and then a head of product for a startup. And then I went to another startup and then a consultancy and then Facebook and now Quora. We got to dig into lots of stuff here. (laughs) Uh, But first, what are you working on right now? 
Well, uh, right now I have a team of designers um, whom I sort of, uh, you know, limply try to assist with their work. Uh, one of the fun things about being where I am now is that I'm, I think this is a reasonable uh, statement. I can make this with like a high degree of confidence. Every designer at Quora is much better than I ever was. Um, did you A-B test that with a significant amount of people? I think so. Okay, Because I cool. did design camp uh, presentations at Facebook. I met a mm. lot of designers. That was one of the most fun things about that job. At least 10 million designers. <laughs> approximately, give or take. 10 million, yes. I'm, I'm not mathematical. 10 million monthly designers. <laughs> <laughs> 10 million monthlies. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I mostly try to help this uh, little quartet, and they work on really, really different things. I have one who's um, deep into machine learning. Uh, he works basically with the machine learning uh, team at Quora uh, on things like feed and the distribution of content and what kind of signals to collect and um, how to make sure that we're not indexing on the wrong signals, especially signals that may reflect like um, you know, the reptilian brain's engagement uh, with, say, a notification badge rather than like a higher order assessment of a product's value. Um, that's Abhinav. Uh, I have another design who uh, does the platform design role. So that's like uh, developing abstractions, UI patterns, uh, also occasionally introducing uh, new types of formats, for example. So we recently launched a video and that was her. She does typography for the product as well. That's Jen. Uh, I have a designer named Diana who's on our internationalization team. Um, internationalization for us is like a really core part of our strategy and also entails some kind of unusual and interesting technical challenges that we're trying to figure out right now for a variety of reasons. Um, and uh, last, I've got a designer named Pat, who is a spectacular uh, dude who works on ads. And he's building our ads product, which is pretty brand new and has so far been really, really successful for us. So that's my four. And mostly what I work on is just uh, trying to be helpful to them in whatever vague ways I can. Uh, and then I do recruiting for Cora as well. What was the internationalization designer's name? Diana. Thank you. She's going to roast me for that. Well, you got to call out on all four of your designs. Yes, yes. Submission so accomplished. I think Thank you, you might have said you. Diana. I was just like, I, oh, just making it was sure beforehand. So I just double check. Absolutely. Where are you from? New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. I lived in New York uh, for three years in the late '90s, yeah. then back to Louisiana, and then out here. Why was Louisiana so important to your? Well, I, I, I might becoming be... Becoming a human. I might be... Exa well, um, <laughs> well, first off, I really like the way they live down there. So, uh -huh. um, you I've know... I've only been once. To New Orleans? Yeah. All right. Any but good? It was, uh, well, hmm. <laughs> it was college, and it was like a spring break kind of thing. But was, was it any good? Yeah, it was good. All right. Okay, good, good. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, what I love about New Orleans, one thing that I, I appreciate a lot about it is that you could, it's accessible in a lot of different valences. So, um, you know, I'm old now. I'm sober. I don't really do fun things or enjoy being around large groups of people. Yeah. And New Orleans is still my favorite city in the world and I think is a delightful and beautiful place. And uh, when I was younger and I loved to get wasted and party all the time, it was also my favorite city in the world. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so it's kind of, uh, I think it's a, a pretty broadly accessible city. And what I really like about it is that, um, and I think this is true for certainly, you know, tens of thousands of people out here, perhaps more, um, uh, being from a part of the country that is absolutely not like Silicon Valley and, and really not like the coasts at all um, is a fairly good way to like consistently remember that a lot of the ideas we have for software out here are predicated on the way that we live and on the types of experiences that we have and especially on like how materially successful we and our societies are. Um, so at Facebook, for example, I worked a lot on this, uh, on, on everyday sharing, on products related to sharing everyday moments. And something that really weighed on me a lot is that I've got a lot of friends in Louisiana who 
don't like the way they look, aren't happy with their car, hate their apartment, don't like their job, don't really have any prospects, don't care very much about their prospects or their jobs, incidentally. The meanings of their lives mm-hmm. are all in things like family and uh, fun afternoons and things Stupid. of that nature. Stupid. Those things don't exist. <laughs> all, these, all these shallow distractions. <laughs> um, and so if you you know roll up into their feed one morning and say, hey, wh- wh- how about if you post a selfie every day? This is not going to make sense to them. This involves mental models of your software that don't make sense. This involves cultural values that they don't share. And there's like a lot of this. Actually, it's, it's funny. I was talking to somebody earlier today about paper, the old Facebook app paper. Mm-hmm. and um, The best icon ever made. Great icon and really great interactions, I thought. I mean, I, it's funny because I've written very critically about paper, but I, I mean, I loved yeah. paper. I thought it was mm-hmm. brilliant. I it was the only it. Facebook app I had for a long, long time. Yeah, many designers are that way. And... I felt like it could have been the basis for an operating system in the sense that its kinetics seemed like a whole um, coherent metaphor mm-hmm. for how you would move things and operate things. Um, and in that sense, I think paper is a good example of why Facebook maybe should have done a phone. Um, they had the chops. They had the people. And certainly origami is primed for those types of uh, uh, product design processes. But um, one of the things that was so funny about paper is paper works best. When the content in paper is beautiful, bokeh blurred DSLR photos. Mike Mattis content. Mike Mattis content. And in fact, a member of the paper team at one point said, I think in a comment on a core question that I'd answered, said one of our hopes was that by putting visual content so forward in paper, it would make people think more about what they were sharing and they would upload more beautiful things, things that were better. Um, And to me, being from Louisiana, and I mean no offense to this guy because that's actually like a coherent intellectual position. I don't mean to like denigrate its Mm -hmm. like overall logic, but it's a super, super, super bad thing to me in terms of values. The people I know who love Facebook the most are my Louisiana network. And the reason they love it is that they don't care at all about what they upload. If they see something interesting, they post it. If they see something that someone else saw, they they dupe it. If they see the same thing again in three weeks, they reshare it again. They're not cultivating or curating a representation of themselves. They certainly don't have brands. They could give a, a damn about what yeah. the profile looks like or the timeline looks like. So they're active, they're natural, they're authentic, and they laugh a lot. They think Facebook is a place where funny and cool things happen and they talk about those things with their friends. That's an ideality. That's a utopia of Facebook. The Facebook that we all hate is the Facebook where everyone is in the process of like very, very carefully uh, producing uh, documentation of a peak experience filled life. Um, and so I do, maybe With I a like- a wall of text above some photos. <laughs> yes, yes. It's something and it has to be, you know, beautiful and thoughtful. I'm always, I, I, one thing that really does always crack me up is the uh, thoughtfulness gap that exists between my California network, my California <laughs> graph and my New Orleans uh, graph. My California graph- I mean, it's like, it's thought pieces every day, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, uh, we took this beautiful trip to this exclusive location. And here is a lovely photograph of the sunset. And one of the things I thought about was a book I read that was recommended to me by one of my favorite TED Talks. And then so on and so forth. And you've got the classic Facebook post. And then my Louisiana <laughs> friends, <laughs> yeah. they're drunk. They're drunk typing. They're, the post is a mess. They're being profane. They're getting in fights in the comments. They're living on Facebook. And they're having fun and they're being themselves. So um, I may, to an extent, exaggerate the degree to which Louisiana is responsible for this, but I do think about it a lot, like how people down there live and what they value and whether our social products mean anything to them in those contexts. And all the social products, uh, I mean, I'll exclude the big ones, maybe in China or something like that, but the big ones, WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, Google, Quora. Is WhatsApp a social (laughs) network? Quora is a does, does WhatsApp network. have like a public-facing social network piece, or is it just uh, I think one it's to one? used as a social, social network? One to many. Um, it's a messaging app that's used like yeah. a social network, but they're designed here. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They're designed by you and me and Bryn and people like us. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell you in terms of like the quality of the things that we're putting out or our understanding of if we're even building the right things at all? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I thought about it a lot whenever I met a designer uh, from somewhere else in the world, right? From, from Not from Silicon Valley. Um, I should add just as a, as a prefatory kind of caveat here, I don't think that this type of point of view that I'm espousing uh, requires you to be from flyover America. I think sure. you could have been born in Monaco and, on a Gulf Stream and flown over <laughs> here and, and immediately deposited at Facebook doorstep. And you could That's feel this and know this as well. a great story too. <laughs> this is my, my proposed alternative biography for myself. If we can redo my intro, I'd like to say I was born in Monaco. Um, well, on a Gulf Stream, five. Right. In flight. Yeah. Uh, well, then are you a citizen of where you land or where you took off? Oh, gosh, I'll have to ask the family lawyer. He's probably on the Gulfstream. And we, we keep him with us all the time. Always, always. Um, he travels with us. We call him Uncle Richard. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't mean to imply that, like, you have to be from somewhere special. Actually, like, one of the basic theses, right, of a, of a mission like Quora's is that it doesn't really matter who you are. What matters is whether, like, relevant knowledge can come to you. So uh, one of the reasons I like to harp on the Louisiana issue and, like, make fun of how denigrated flyover America is by uh, Silicon Valley is just because I think that all you need to do is think about it. And it's immediately pretty apparent. You know, I, I worked in a call center for five years. When you work in a call center, how frequently are you going to want to post a picture of yourself at work? All the time. All the time. <laughs> you know, not that it's, it's not a glamorous job and you don't feel good about it. There's no status from it. Nobody admires you for it. And I think that's actually just as a really trivial thing. I think we forget that most people in the world never even consider whether there might be a job that's meaningful to them. I certainly never did. I thought jobs were a thing that you just did in order to pay for the meaningful parts of your life, mm-hmm. namely your social life and your hobbies and artistic endeavors on the side. Um, after you're in Silicon Valley for a little while, you know, you start to find your work meaningful. And that's a luxury that I think is on the order of our salaries. I mean, that's a really extraordinary thing. I talk to my friends back home and they're obviously like pretty disaffected and bored and, you know, their jobs don't mean anything to them. And that's par. So um, this is where like the do what you love thing, like that yes, statement is yes. so it's alien. Yeah, it's very based on a set of privileges that most people just never consider. Absolutely. I never even thought about what I loved <laughs> because, you know, what would that matter? I just do what I like to do in my spare time. You know, I, No I, one's going to pay me to drink that much. <laughs> right, right. Um, and Unless it's be, on a TV show. <laughs> or, or to be a nerd. I, it's, it's, I'm often amused by, I had this like um, really, really favorable uh, exposure to the internet. I was on eWorld, uh, which was Apple's competitor to AOL in the mid-90s. And then I was on AOL, of course. And my high school computer teacher was Jonah Peretti, who went on to found Huffington what? Post and BuzzFeed. Yeah, he was a computer <laughs> science teacher in New Orleans. He taught this little computer class. He, he had us all make web pages with HTML, you know, and frames. And somehow, I never once during any of this time thought, oh, well, I love this. I should do this. I thought, oh, I love this. I'm going to do this all the time after school or after a job. And uh, I never would have actually pursued a career in tech, I don't think, had Abby not just been like, you need to get to San Francisco. And then it's hard not to fall into it here. Well, Mills, you just need to be more entrepreneurial. And just... I am. That's another thing. Actually, that's a really good job. What's funny about that, that word is so much. I am Ugh. super not entrepreneurial and I'm not ambitious and I'm not scrappy. So I, I often do feel like I am the representative of all the ordinary pieces of shit in the world <laughs> who are not otherwise going to have a voice at, at these Rally tables. behind me. Right. In these super cool conference rooms with people who have like, you know, driven themselves and deliberately achieved certain things and learned and mastered skills. I don't think I've I've ever deliberately done anything in my life. I mean, I, I smoke cigarettes. 
You know, it's like you couldn't be more anathema, I don't feel like, to an optimization, health-oriented, fact-oriented culture than uh, you can by being a smoker. Because people go, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Isn't that awful? And aren't you disgusting? And I'm like, yeah, me and a lot of other people. What do you think about it? <laughs> Deal with it. Deal with it. Um, I'm going to go get on my Gulfstream. <laughs> yeah. I'll see you. Find the last place you can smoke. So uh, in answer to your question, I, you know, the fact that these things are designed out here, I think there's like, you know, the general answer I've, I've, I've heard that I found persuasive about why we tend to have these concentrations on the coast, right? It's just various kinds of network effects. It's so much easier. Um, I do think that it's an actual... Um, tragedy of sorts that I know many people who could have done these types of jobs and simply weren't close to them and didn't know about them. Um, so that is like one of the things that kind of uh, is is uh, motivating to me about the idea that like if Cora got good enough, I might have learned things that would have altered my own trajectory. So instead of coming to California when I was 30, maybe I would have come when I was 20. Um, I don't have any particular regrets, but um, – I still have friends who are in New Orleans who I think could do these types of jobs, you know, could, could be software designers or engineers. Um, and it's just never somehow gotten on their radar. Well, one of the things that I want to like make sure I call it is most of the designers I know that live in Silicon Valley are not from Silicon right. Valley. Right. It's pretty rare. They're from around the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So everyone comes from around the world and ends up here, but we do end up, I think it's hard to paint in broad strokes, but we do end up with the bubbleness of this, right? Like this curated lifestyle, the way we use the internet, the perception we have, the way we use tools. It's like, doesn't seem like it's where you're from that causes that. It seems like it's just this place. Totally. I, I, it's funny. I was having, so I met today with um, a woman who manages a design team for an Indonesian e-commerce company um, in Jakarta. And we were just talking about various challenges of managing design teams and process and stuff like that. And one of the things she mentioned was that one of her big struggles is she feels like a lot of the designers that who work for her or work on her team um, uh, tend to just kind of like imitate whatever they understand being a designer to be. So if they read a bunch of blog posts that indicate that right now everybody's into Google Sprints, the most important thing to them is doing Google Sprints. It doesn't matter what the project or the context or the utility of it is, they're going to do a Google Sprint. And if they think that using stickies is what designers do, they're going to insist on more stickies. If they see that designers dress a certain way, that's how they're going to dress. And I actually was, yes, we're both in all black. Uh, I was actually extremely heartened to learn this because I had assumed that this was, (laughs) uh, no, well that too. Uh, I had assumed this was Silicon Valley and New York. And to learn that even in Jakarta, designers are afflicted with this problem where uh, I think to a certain extent, we don't know exactly what the role is. It's a, it's a fairly ill-defined role. So the first thing you do when you show up in, in your community is start looking the part, you know, start acting the part. And I do think there is this homogenizing effect. I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly extremely guilty of it. I mean, I used to dress like a cowboy and uh, now I'm like an extreme design hipster, you know? Dude. I would fucking love to have a friend named Mills who dressed like a cowboy. That's the greatest <laughs> shit in the world. I don't know how much my friends enjoyed it. I'm going to actually bring that up with them, that they didn't seem to really take, they didn't seem to appreciate it. Hmm. Especially like as a designer, people would lose their minds. Maybe I should bring them back. Yeah, Maybe I, mean, I should. It's fun. It's worth it. It's shake it up. Are shake it up. are very fun to wear. All black. I mean, come on. It's yeah. played, man. It's played. <laughs> but it's also stain resistant. So <laughs> That's the key. <laughs> That's the key. So it's utilitarian as well. As yeah, stylish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, like I mean, and it's it comfortable, right? And like, well, it's a t-shirt and jeans. Yeah, it's pretty comfy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is the thing I feel spoiled about. Is I don't great feel like I'm Ever gonna have to wear a suit? It's a great example. My ever. my lowest paying jobs are where I had to wear the nicest clothes. Right, of course. 
When I worked in a call Crazy. center, there was a dress code uh-huh. and my shirt had to be tucked in. Mm-hmm. And something I think about all the time is um, how much of a daily, and I'm, I'm sure I'm hypersensitive to this on the general spectrum of humanity, but it felt like a daily humiliation that I didn't like my body and the dress code exacerbated the mm-hmm. degree to which the things I was ashamed of were visible. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing I could do about it. Um, specifically, I felt like I was soft in the middle. And so tucking a shirt in wasn't good. And every day I had to think about that. And when I came out here, that is that was one of the first things I thought. It's like, you know, if I complain to my friends at home that I'm working long hours, they're going to say, yeah, you're working long hours wearing jeans and an untucked T-shirt, smoking joints on the fire escape of your startup where you're allowed to bring both your dogs and you just talk about software all day like you used to do for no money. My heart goes out to you, my man. <laughs> so, you know, the, the capacity to vent and complain to your friend network is certainly constrained. That's probably the only reduction in, in, in like quality of life. No, we Go, still do that. Home we is really still hard. do that. We're really good at that. <laughs> when I go home, nobody is interested. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm i going home soon, and it's always a reminder that nobody gives a shit. Yeah. I, I, I really like that. I yeah. like that a lot. Yeah. It's refreshing and humbling in a way that like brings me down several pegs from thinking like, oh, design's pretty important. Mm-hmm. Not to say it's not important. I could have told you that. <laughs> most people <laughs> just don't give a shit. It's important in like an industrial commercial context. Totally. Which is important. Yeah. But like if one thing I, I so when I was when I used to work at uh, Home Depot, uh, we did a lot I of business. At Lowe's, with, and oh, I worked so, in the oh, IT shit, call center. We're guys. like we're we are on parallel tracks, but we're also competitors. Perfect. Mm. And y'all, if I remember correctly, are killing us. I don't know now. I think Lowe's uh, was doing really well dude, when I was at home. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention at all when I was there because I was working from four a.m. to noon unloading trucks. Yeah. Oh bummer. Okay. Yeah, that's the, that is the tough shift. <laughs> you don't um, give a shit about the stock. Price. But they paid me ten dollars an hour. I thought it was the greatest job in the world. Same. Yeah, when you when when that's the industry, you're like, oh my god, I'm richer than anybody. I, that's exactly how I felt when I worked in the call center. I was like, this I couldn't is more stay money awake after work. Spend. But... Yeah, well, that's good. You save even more money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, now I've completely lost yeah, my train I, of thought. Uh, Lowe's. When you were working at Home Lowe's, Depot, you were working at Home Depot. What was I doing there? <laughs> Shit. Oh, I remember now. Uh, we used to deal a lot with Kohler, which is, you know, you uh-huh. know the, the company Kohler. And I used to think about Kohler's designers. Sinks. Kohler, yeah. They, and yeah, they, so they have like ah, a design team Kohler, that yeah. makes incredibly ornate and expensive things that are often in some way technologically advanced. For example, for a long time, they sold a $6,000 toilet that they called the hat box toilet because it just looked like a hat box coming out of the floor. It had no visible tank uh, and yet it worked like a normal toilet. So our, our number one, like, I think like feature or whatever. I can't remember what they called it, but it, like you know, it set up these like really featured like end caps or whatever. Yeah. And it had a touch enabled faucet. Yeah. And that's what like. And nobody can ever figure out. Everyone do, would just walk by, touch it and like go on about their way. <laughs> like a Delta or something. Yeah. yeah I don't yeah. fucking know. All right. Yeah, so you got crazy. a hot box toilet. So these, you know, I used to think like how much esteem or how much status or how much self-regard do you think those designers have for themselves in contrast to the, the software designers out here, right? So if I change companies, it's de rigueur for me to do a post about it. If I uh, feel like I've designed something really good, I'm going to tell the whole world about it. I'm going to put it on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm going to ask everyone. My, even my loved ones are going to have to listen to me go, boy, it wasn't easy settling on a design, but after several iterations, I was able to. And I wonder if the Kohler toilet designers have any of these same status effects or feel in any way, you know, the same kind of prestige and esteem. And I doubt it. And I think they have a probably more accurate view. I, I built a really beautiful place for you to take a shit. Right. No, but which I, is important. Key even. I would, I can see in my mind's eye 
the most beautifully produced Apple-esque Mac Pro unveil video of a toilet. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty me, good. That made me pretty fucking it's gonna proud. Have, oh, it's going to have like chalk bursts. And yeah, yeah. Like chalk and eye opening. And it's slowly <laughs> rotating. off a leaf. <laughs> you have to, after this, you have to Google the bold look of Kohler and see all of the incredibly high designed and literally Apple-esque oh. posters that they have made and ads that they've made over the years. They consider themselves a design company. And I always love finding a design company in a totally unrelated industry because you see which of the same types of phenomena crop up. And one of them is their ads look like art projects there literally there's a tiger on the floor of the bathroom and a nearly naked woman is walking in front of the toilet and there is a chalk explosion <laughs> and the whole it's like it's it's striking and and so anyway yeah i i think I of us as roughly being like that woman's gonna get chalk all over her <laughs> to say nothing of the lion to say nothing of what was a tiger a minute ago <laughs> <laughs> see i'm not that good with lions and tigers <laughs> it's coded in, my it's LSU coded in education. tell <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't see it clearly yeah maybe they're just not on twitter more power to them, right? <laughs> Lucky. Twitter's tough. Twitter's Twitter are tough. shitty enough. Do you like <laughs> JK? <laughs> I really like Twitter. <laughs> I feel like we've gotten this implicitly a little bit, hearing a little bit of, of what you did growing up. But what did you want to do? You were growing up in New Orleans. I'm not sure I can have really... any dreams? Uh, I can't I can't remember having anything like a specific intention for what I would do with my life. I um this I know this sounds extremely dramatic and I apologize in advance, but uh I was I, I have bipolar disorder and so most of my adolescence was mentally turbulent enough that I didn't really think about anything beyond like the next like month. I, I basically didn't have long-term plans because I didn't really think I was gonna make it. And then I went off to school. I studied music, art history, and literature. I'd been a musician for my whole life. New Orleans is a music city, so everybody becomes a musician. I was a drummer and a bassist and a pianist. And I went off to New York, did that stuff, and then I had a big bipolar crash and left New York. And then I moved back to the South in kind of a convalescent way, back in with my parents, worked at a veterinary hospital, um, and even then, I don't remember – I was in treatment, so things were stabilizing, and it would have made sense for me to have some kind of future orientation. I don't recall ever thinking about the future. Um, I just kind of bopped around. That's how I wound up working in these contact centers and um, getting into that field. And then I happened to meet Abby. So I'm not sure I've had like a sustained future ambition maybe ever. I'm just a little bit flighty. Um, and so my life has like – it feels a little yeah. bit more like chaptery. At what point in there did you start writing? Uh, well, writing online – I you know – I'm not sure when I when I really started writing generally, but the first time I started writing online was uh, probably in the mid-late 1990s, around 1996, 1997. Any reason why? Uh, yeah, so Jonah had taught us how to build websites, so we built some websites. And uh, I was a frustrated and miserable child, and I had some frustrated, miserable friends, and we all thought that our frustrations were probably reflective of like profound problems with society. And so we wanted to write about so how bad teenagers. society was. We were teens. And so we decided to post. It was basically like our own little live journal. Um, and it was like an FTP site that I coded and uploaded and uh, when the modem was working. And uh, so that was probably 97 is the earliest thing I've got still. And it's bad. And then that just kind of continued. I, I found it really enjoyable. And then I got onto Tumblr. And Tumblr's integrated distribution really was such a huge um, differentiator. I mean, I went from writing for literally no one to having readers and having interactions and making friends. And it probably changed the trajectory of my life more than any company other than Apple. Did all of a sudden having an audience change what you wrote about? Uh, not having an audience, but once the audience started growing, it absolutely did. Uh, I actually don't really write on Tumblr anymore. Uh, once I've crossed a certain threshold, it seemed to be impossible to say anything without 
offending or alienating or angering someone. And I'm pretty sensitive about confrontation. Um, I'm like, things will really weigh on me. So I remember one time I posted uh, a short little thing about dogs. And the first reply was, fuck you. And I st- that was probably in 2009, <laughs> you know, and I'll never forget it. I spent days sort of thinking, why did they say this? Did I, was, this, was, this like a, was this a self-regarding post? Yeah. Did I accidentally slip into some kind of like narcissism or was this rude? Did I, is something in here like, and, and hate mail and hateful comments and things of that nature. So one of the main things that uh, attracted me to Quora was if you can successfully scale moderation, it transforms all of these internet products. And my hope anyway is that the solutions that we develop will be commodified so that eventually Twitter and every other company that has this horrible kind of problem with scaling a community and eventually just like it doesn't matter how small a percentage of the community is um, malicious actors, um, it will actually derail the community. Um, if we can create some like good solutions to that or if, if our solutions can be commodified, it could help a lot of internet products. And I think that's like one of the primary unsolved challenges with internet products right now. What's Quora's business model? Ads. Okay. Hell yeah. I feel like ads kind of exacerbate this specific problem because user accounts equate to more eyeballs seeing ads. So more money is made by the platform. So people don't remove accounts. Oh, we don't care. How does moderation fit into that? We remove accounts. Okay. Yeah. Straight up. Adam's really, really long term. So we're lucky in the sense that we have almost no, I don't think anybody's ever invested in Quora who wasn't in it for a really long ride. Um, There's no pressure to to do anything um, that would be sort of like contrary to the long-term health of the company. The truth is, if we don't solve the harassment and abuse problem, I mean, we as like designers in general, as internet developers mm-hmm. in general, um, a lot of our services will never reach the, the level of utility that they're intended to. Um, I think even Twitter is an example of this, where you can imagine a world where uh, through the combined use of like uh, affordable, affordably scaled human contractor queues and machine learning that gets trained by the, how those human contractors vet tweets and so on and so forth, Twitter actually built a really good abuse and, and, and harassment prevention platform that was scalable and affordable with their business structure. Um, you can imagine a world where Twitter is like facilitating a huge amount more discussion mm-hmm. and cross-cultural exchange and news dissemination and all sorts of useful things. I do think to a large extent their growth is capped by how difficult the platform can be. I mean you really only mm-hmm. need to see one of your friends or get uh, yourself blown up um, for something inadvertent or ill-timed. And the truth is I think this problem is much more nefarious than people understand. It's not that – in general when I talk to designers about this, they, they tend to think that there are good users and there are bad users. Mm-hmm. And harassment and moderation uh, or moderation of harassment and abuse, it's all about identifying and eliminating bad users. And, uh, you know, without meaning any disrespect, um, while there certainly are literally bad actors, it's much more common that these types (laughs) of things are collisions between norms in different communities. And I don't know anyone on any side of any spectrum (laughs) who has not done something online that would be deeply and legitimately hurtful to someone else. And it can be something as trivial as you don't know that there's been a horrible disaster in some other part of the world. And so you just hop on Twitter and say, man, I'm stoked about this new iPhone. And it's really, really fucked up for somebody who's lost a loved one. And Twitter doesn't care. 
Twitter allows all of these things to happen in one timeline in one room. The analogy that I always use is like, it's literally like I have a convention center and I book it to your family for a funeral and I book it to you for a Super Bowl party and I book it to these kids for a quiz bowl. And I'm just like, this should probably work out fine. I don't see any reason why putting this frat party near this memorial to something that happened 50 years ago, I don't see why that would be an issue. Of course, it would be an issue. Uh, Fights would emerge. Ordinarily, decent people would be exacerbated by cycles of reaction into eventually becoming like truly malevolent. And I think most of us have seen this happen. Um, It's simply the nature of online discourse when uh, online software basically fails to match the level of subtle personalization that we all engage in in the real world. Um, I don't wander into funerals and start talking about iPhones. I don't go to sports parties and announce, I think sports is stupid. And I also don't go to like nerd parties and say, can we put on the game? Somehow I'm capable of like personalizing my behavior and all groups have these permeable membranes and you can kind of move in and out and you can have many different selves. And Twitter to me is the example par excellence of software that ignores almost all of these subtle human capabilities and instead just says, you're all here, sort it out. And most people then go, well, God, some of these people are really bad. Got to get them off the platform. There are some number of them that are bad. Nazis are pretty bad. I think we're all pretty comfortable just being like, you know what? No Nazis. Um, But unfortunately, there's a lot more. The the, the volume of abuse that comes from somebody being like a malevolent, you know, hurtful person is dwarfed by the volume of, uh, you know, norm collision. Different communities that express themselves differently at different times not getting along. So you brought up ML, machine learning, Mm -hmm. maybe three times. Mm -hmm. Is that the answer? ML is just an engineering technique. Um, It can be super useful. It can also cause all kinds of its own problems. Um, So I am an advocate for designers understanding what ML is good for um, and what it can be used for. I also think it's super important for designers to know that so that they can push back in meetings where someone is presupposing that ML is good for something it's not good for. Yeah. Um, well, it's good for everything because it's a buzzword. That That's actually the real dilemma, right? And so if you're a designer and you don't have any kind of facility to talk about ML, you'll be in those meetings where someone's just like, we're going to ML it. Have you guys seen that Medium article about ML? I'm pretty yeah. hyped about it. And you may not know how to say, well, this is why this isn't actually a good application for ML. I mean, like a, a very classic example that I mentioned to you earlier, I think, uh, is that typically if you rank and personalize elements of software from content to even theoretically a user interface, it makes it less deterministic. And humans are extremely accustomed to determinism because we evolved in a physical reality where most things were deterministic. It's why I get angry every time Twitter adds something new to my feed that isn't like the clear ordering. That's right. So people resent algorithmic feeds. Um, one of the things that is really interesting about how Facebook users use Facebook is they mostly navigate with newsfeed. So if, you have, if you're in some groups, you would be surprised how many people never go to a group's tab. They just scroll newsfeed until they see there's an update from their group or they do the same thing through notifications. So a non-deterministic software space can yield cow path user patterns where they never form a, a mental model of what's happening. They never have an accurate sense of what's happening. A shocking percent of feed users of all feed products, and I wish I could share the specific number, um, believe that everyone in the world sees the same feed. And you can ask a single follow-up question to any one of these users. If you say, well, do you think it's weird that a billion point seven people saw your niece in that photo, but it only had three likes? Does that seem weird to you? They'll go, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess not everybody sees the same thing. In other words, they're not 
wedded to some false idea of software, they're busy living their lives. And so they never model your software. It's not their job. They're not interested in it. And it doesn't work how their real life does. And all of this aggregates into like several kinds of costs of ML and ML type systems. Um, so I think it's like super useful to know about. I don't think it's a panacea by any means. Um, are, are these things at odds, like a building a gigantic social network that can scale to meet the needs of the world while also avoiding conflicts of norms while also understanding what is like a healthy conflict and not it seems dumb to avoid them entirely oh you don't yeah you wouldn't want to do that you just let arguments be okay in canada and everywhere else they're (laughs) off no but are, are these at odds especially when you add in the advertising business model which i guess depending on the angle could work with this but if an advertising business model works better with more views with more engagement and we know that certain types of content create more engagement i know you write about this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. are these things at odds i think they can be so one place where they're definitely at odds is in any kind of short-term calculus um so for example let's say that you've identified a type of content or a type of user on your platform that generates a lot of activity nazis nazis but it's bad ecosystemic activity you actually think that long term it will kill your platform nazi bots (laughs) right nazi bots (laughs) you and and your company is managed on a fairly short-term basis you actually may have to and by and incidentally i I doubt that twitter is having to make these kinds of calculations i i I bet that they're actually pretty like good faith about this i don't think their advertisers want necessarily inflated user counts i'm not sure though um but uh if you if if your you know timeline if your sort of performance management or product development timelines are all on a six month cycle or or a shorter quarterly cycle and your investors have quarterly expectations, maybe saying we'd like to remove twenty million accounts would be problematic. Um, I think actually probably the most um, persistently accurate concern I've heard people have about capitalism is this tendency to push onto the short term. Because the truth is, in the long term, user and company values here are pretty aligned. Nazis on Twitter make Twitter worse. Twitter should remove them. That will make Twitter more valuable because it will be better for more people. And actually, that's not a real, it's not a real Sophie's choice. It's only a Sophie's choice if the investor is like, the user numbers are going up this quarter, right? Then it's a Sophie's choice. And that's unfortunate. Um, which is, again, why like I, that's one of the things that attracted me to Quora is like Adam, I don't think it has any degree of impatience to like get this anywhere. He wants to do this right. And Quora literally will not work if we were, for example, to prioritize views over ecosystem health. It's a marketplace ecosystem. You've got writers. You've got readers. And, and, and these users, like they need certain things to work. And if you fuck it up, it can get pretty grisly pretty fast. So, for example, if we prioritized just raw view counts or raw user counts, we would wind up with a really, really shitty product. You might have actually seen products of this type like Yahoo Answers. Yeah. But hey, view- that's the best fucking tool. But view counts. View have counts- you ever heard my brother, my brother and me? <laughs> How is Babby formed? Yes. <laughs> How? But also, <laughs> this comes up at work all the time. From, from the episode this morning, what gauge are Dave Navarro's nipple rings? Did it have an answer? I don't remember. Uh, view counts are important on Quora, though, right? Uh, I think they're like they're in celebrated. Order. They're important to writers uh, yeah. because writers are super distribution sensitive. So, like, if you think about most people in the world and what they know, um, how to raise a child with a certain disorder, how to manage a new job in a new city, what the best restaurant in some weird rural area is, all of those people, in theory, could be rewarded for sharing that knowledge. 
the probable difficulty they'll have is that they would have to somehow find a place to put it online, start a blog, spend years building an audience, SEOing, advertising, put it on Facebook, and it immediately starts to recede into the past. Same with Twitter. It's not accessible. Uh, there's no topic ontology, so future people who are curious about that will never be able to find it, so on and so forth. So Quora tries to basically, um, in the same way that like a lot of services do, bundle a lot of these different functions and values in a way that makes the entire ecosystem much more valuable. So views are important on Quora because they are a demonstration to writers that this is actually working. When I logged on to Quora and I answered, uh, where are the best ribs in New Orleans? Um, it actually, 650 people saw it this week, 36 of them upvoted it. Like it gives you some degree of confidence that there's utility to it. And ultimately our feeling is at least my feeling, um, distribution is the lever for writers. It's what's missing everywhere else. I mean, even I'm sure you'll have had this experience. You post something and you know, we're in the design community. Like in theory, I think we're probably in sort of the upper end of the distribution spectrum, you know, and it, you post it on Medium and it gets like three likes. And then you know that after that first day, it's only going to get fewer and fewer and fewer, kind of forever. Um, so that's something that like we think about a lot is like, how could you make it so that um, somebody sharing knowledge receives some kind of reward, distribution, reputation, whatever, but for a long time, maybe forever, for as long as the knowledge is useful. This is something that's interesting because um, John Schlossberger, he had a, a reply on Quora that, uh, that was there for a long time about designers having a seat at the table. It didn't take off until like three years later mm -hmm. yeah. when someone randomly posted it on Twitter. I think it was like Julie Zhu or mm -hmm. uh, John Lax or someone like that. Yeah, I think John posted it. That's funny. I, I think that's super interesting. Like theoretically, that should never happen. Like that's not mm -hmm. that's not in our model of how content gets distributed. Right. But occasionally something just like comes out of nowhere and like it got super popular all of a sudden. Yeah. That's it. So the, the fact that it exploded in popularity, I think you could point to that being like evidence of the initial distribution being bad. Um, the nice thing is, though, that, for example, if you're on Quora and we know you're interested in software design, we will reach all the way back to 2010. If there's something great about software design that we have a high degree of confidence you'll like, it's by somebody who we think you respect or someone whose answers you've liked in the past, or it's by somebody who whose answers are liked by people who also like answers that you like, so on and so forth, this kind of cohorting, um, we can show it to you. And it's very often still valid. One of the things that really amuses me is that um, when we first started showing like older answers in feed, this was many years ago before I worked at Quora, so I feel relatively comfortable talking about it. Um, one of the things I saw users complain about the most is they'd go, ah, oh, I don't want to see some answer from 2011. And they would screen cap it. And it would be a question like, why was the Battle of Hastings fought in 1066? And I would always think, you want a newer take? What do you think? <laughs> I want the hottest take. What's the hot? Well, and so I am, this is a dynamic I'm super interested in. It's like humans are so oriented towards news. And I think there's a lot of plausible explanations for that. I also think news is the worst content category by far. I think almost anything else that you take in will be more edifying for you than news. And I think that if you look over the course of your life at the news you've taken in and just imagine that you'd never learned a single one of those things and then ask yourself what would be different now about the world or about you, it's probably a pretty strong indication for most people that the news is very rarely a vector of meaning or personal change. And people will cite examples. They'll say, well, so for example, what about, um, I, you know, uh, maybe they, they saw a news story about Katrina and it made them realize that the federal government wasn't doing things very well or something like that. Um, those do happen. But I think the truth is you would have heard about those things without the news. So when things are truly important, someone tells you about them. And there's this kind of nice filtering effect where someone will go, boy, I'm really upset about X, Y, or Z. In other words, we're actually already doing a pretty good job of disseminating relevant information to individuals 
in the world that existed before computers, um, we're just not doing a very good job of disseminating much knowledge to them. It's like hard, you're geographically isolated. If there's not a good university or library, you don't know a mentor or professor or a lawyer or doctor, someone who can give you relevant things. But I'm like, I do sometimes fantasize. If I were to fantasize about my future to answer your question from way earlier, I would love to kill news as a primary source of distraction for contemporary device users. Fuck you, Jonah Peretti. I hope Jonah would take this in, in good spirits. Thanks for I the love career. Jonah. Peace out. <laughs> I do love Jonah. And I, actually, and I, I have enormous respect for BuzzFeed. Um, and I actually like media companies. I don't think that they should go away. Um, it's not so much that, like, for example, I don't have any problem with the New York Times. I think they're wonderful. It's more... Don't you think it's odd that everybody in America, everybody in the world wakes up and reads a bunch of news stories every day that are almost always recapitulations of ideas and beliefs that they already held? When was the last time you read a news story and your position on something changed? I often like to ask people, so what was the news story that turned you around on climate change? There wasn't one. What was the news story that turned you around on police violence? Probably... Probably not a news story, right? Probably something else. And what's interesting is that that would suggest to me that you would really reduce the amount of your diet that's coming from news. Um, but it's so engaging. Every day I log back onto Twitter and check out that news. It's an ongoing story, right? Like it's some kind of saga of yeah. like how I see the world. Yeah, yeah. It connect it makes you feel connected, I think, mm -hmm. in a pretty illusory yeah. way to the superstructure of, of civilization. You have you something know? to complain about with other people. Yeah, things are going on right now, man. And uh, I'm staying on top of them. You know, I'm staying way on top of them. <laughs> I agree, <sighs> but ah, fuck. Well, disagree because this is not a really deeply, like I haven't worked this takeout very deeply, so I would love to argue about it. It just makes me feel like, is is there inherent value in being informed? Even if the inf being informed doesn't result in action. One of my favorite tweets of all time was from this Tibetan Lama I follow. And Lama? Just, Wait, a Lama, like yeah. a... Like the Dalai Lama, not like but not the, oh yeah, shit, not like Sorry. an alpaca. Sorry. Oh no, no, not okay. like a, right, not the animal. <laughs> sure. the, the, the spiritual leader. And oh he, boy, I sound dumb. And just popped <laughs> up in my in my timeline and said, "Be less informed. If you're not going to do something about it, don't bother knowing about it." Do you agree with that? I, well, I thought it was super provocative, and I have thought about it a great deal. Um, so you'll see periodically tweets about this, right? People will say, hey, look, I just want to make sure everybody knows um, we're in the midst of a, a, a like an outrageous catastrophe at the national political level, but it's okay to take time for yourself to enjoy something. You know, not every day has to be rage. Here's some puppies to look at. Have you seen any of these types of tweets? Basically encouraging Basically people. every day. Yeah. Right. So I think it's interesting because those tweets are obviously in reply to something, right? And, and th they are in reply to this injunction that a good citizen stays informed about the news. And I love this quote about the news. I, I, I think it's Emerson or maybe it's Thoreau. One of them called the news the froth of scum intellectual. of the eternal. <laughs> All right. I, I just want to give a shout out to Mike Hudak, who was the guy who called me an intellectual. Um, so he called it the froth and scum of the eternal sea. That is, the news is what happens up here. And all of the real issues, all of the meaning is down here, right? And news is just permutations on things that you already think. Like Those uh, were hand gestures for those of you inside oh, I'm sorry. the microphone. <laughs> I'm sorry, I um, so uh, one example would be like, you read about a school shooting. I assume both of you already have points of view and opinions about, say, for example, gun control or mental health treatment in the United States or how tough it is to be an adolescent and so on and so forth. Um, it's pretty unlikely that reading about a school shooting is going to change your points of view. I, I would bet. I mean, I would be really surprised, right? Um, I don't know too many people who do change their points of view in response to news, as a matter of fact. So what are you doing when you decide to read that extremely upsetting story about a, a school shooting? You're bringing yourself down, right? You're hurting. You're, you're feeling worse. 
Is it generating additional compassion? Maybe. I think it's actually a pretty good citizen sort of duty to think daily about the dead, as macabre as that sounds. Like, I do try to, like, if there's been a disaster, I do try to think about it. But to be honest, what would be my reasons for that? I would have only supernatural reasons for thinking that that was important, because it's clearly not doing anything effective or material for any of the people who are involved. Um, But sympathy does generate endorphins. Which is fucked up. Right. It's a little fucked up, right? So I think people get a real kick out of the news, mostly in gross ways. I think that the primary purpose of news is to be reminded that there are people out there who are super, super bad and and whom you are way better than. Um, And to feel that delightful rush of indignation against some awful other and the latest stupidity. Superiority. No, 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 no. Right. Because you already knew all of the things that you knew before you read the news today. Only now you know them again. Those people are even worse than you thought. And it turns out it's just great. So today I learned that Trump's watch is too small for his fat wrist. (laughs) Wait, is that true? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's great. (laughs) You're so informed now. I do feel informed. So and, and I should add the other big right pushback on this would be. Well, there are times when news matters. For example, let's say, uh, you know, during a war, you're a member of the resistance in occupied Europe. News matters, right? Um, So I actually don't have like any kind of settled system for this. Um, I read the news every single day, just like everybody else. Um, It almost always makes me unhappier than it does make me motivated to do something. I do the things that I do for my conscience, but um, broadly, I'm not sure the news has had as decisive an impact on me, say, as like the 50th best book I've read. Um, especially novels. So one thing that I really resent is the transition. You know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was everyone talked about how nobody in America read anymore and literacy was declining and television had ruined culture. They've been talking about that for like 200 years or some bullshit. And now look at where we live. Everyone reads all day, every day. No time in history could have anticipated this one in terms of how much text is consumed. Everybody just reads text all day. It's like astonishing. Do you feel like the culture has improved? Like, People are more intelligent. Somehow taking in information doesn't really seem to be doing anything. <laughs> well, to be fair, if if you scale the amount of information that the culture knows at a, a fairly even level, even if people are kind of dumb in how they use it, it, it still feels bad even if the amount of information taken in is higher, right? I think like that's right. Quality information. Like people can get technically smarter without making use of it. Oh, yeah. Right. And I think most of us feel that this happens. I mean, I feel this with myself, right? Like I catch myself all the time reading some book and then it's immediately gone, you know, and it's made no impact and I haven't improved at all. I usually assume that's because of the Louisiana thing is that literally because I I work, you know, Abhinav, uh, the designer who I mentioned earlier, um, I I watch Abhinav and Jen and and, and people like them just kind of grow and grow and grow. And I I just think, boy, that looks really exhausting. Mm. Um, But good for you, you know, way to go. So if not the news, then what? Well, that's a that's a pretty tough question. Um, I think for you, what do you do for enjoyment? <laughs> oh gosh, uh, what do I do for enjoyment? Um, oh my god, that that's the tough question. Um, that was a tough. You pause commute to, hear. to Mountain View. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is going to have to pivot to an intervention. Uh, honestly, like when people say, "So what do you do outside of design?" or like, "What do you do when you're not working?" I'm like. I don't know. Fuck. I work out and I sleep. I write JavaScript for fun, I guess. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, Wow, I'm really a one-dimensional character. Yeah, I guess I am fairly one-dimensional at this point in my life, certainly. Uh, You know, I think the usual things, uh, nothing really worth mentioning. I don't think, you know, music, video games, reading, writing, uh, 
messing around with my dog. I have a dog and a cat. I got a wife. Uh, you know, I got a whole little cast I can you hang out with. be careful about listing those in that order, by the way. <laughs> I, 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 as soon <laughs> as I thought I was coming on here, I was like, cat, how should wife. I talk about Abby while I'm on this <laughs> podcast? And then I was like, Abby's never going to listen to this podcast. You don't think? No. Abby, if you're listening. Abby has good taste. <laughs> Abby does have good taste. She made one mistake, but everything else she's done really well with. That's a big mistake. It's a big mistake. <laughs> it's oh, the yeah. one that matters. It's a, it's a lifer. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, um, instead of news, uh, I think, th- so I'll, I'll actually, because this is already a controversial and underthought take, uh, because I wanted to share a take. I'm AKA gonna, a hot take. It's a hot take. I'm gonna, We're basically designed Twitter Live right now, right? <laughs> I'm going to heat it even further. Here's, here's what I really resent about the news. I think the news has mostly displaced vectors for knowledge that were more valuable. For example, almost anything in the liberal arts. So almost anything related to art, literature, history, culture, any of those types of of content, any of that type of knowledge, right? Performances, uh, even things like movies, I think, are actually an aggregate, probably more edifying and builds you towards a greater place of human compassion and, uh, you know, perceptiveness about how things function in society and and how people's lives paths, life paths unfold. Um, I think even movies are better at that than the news. The news reminds me a lot of the types of philosophy that I didn't like in the sense that it is always extremely reductive and it's always... Um, extremely obviously factually oriented which is both a benefit and a cost the benefit is that it's substantive and it's real and it's you know not like subject to thousands and thousands of interpretations the cost is that um it saps everything that's meaningful out of human life i think a lot of people read the news and actually believe that life is purely about your status your station and how much you make and i think the bulk of human history indicates that none of those things is actually that important. Like it's much more important what your relationships are like, um, how you feel about yourself, what you live for, what you care about, and less to do with society and society's rewards and responses to you. So like I'm a I'm like a liberal arts individualist type, right, in the 80s mold. And so I always feel like, God, if I could just get people to read less news and more of almost anything else, it would be an improvement. Even like even like Danielle Steele. That's a reference that's flying way over my head, my friend. Oh, she's like a romance novelist. She's oh, like okay. a, you know, cool. a trillion paperback romance novelist. And she like I think if you spend all of your time thinking about love and sex, it'll probably benefit you more as a human being than if you spend all of your time thinking about um, whether or not the holes in the ozone are going to make it impossible for you to go outside with your kids in 20 years. Um, that will all happen more or less without your participation. Do you read industry books? Sometimes, yeah. Uh, sometimes, but not very, not very frequently. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in software design more than I am um, in, uh, for example, like graphic design, mm-hmm. um, which is probably because I'm horrible at graphic design. I'm not sure I'm any better at software design. Well, if you read some obvious. books about it, maybe you'd like, could turn get this it. thing around. <laughs> this is the problem. I don't have that growth mindset. Um, so uh, I read a lot of like industry histories, right? Like I really, I, I've been enjoying. Uh, What's that book? I'm reading it right now. The Idea Factory, which is a history of Bell Labs. And I, I think that one of the weirdest things about our scene is that there's this uh, trajectory. Uh, David Cole, the head of design at Quora, and, and my buddy, he once explained this to me, I believe, and so I hope I'm not butchering this. But basically, there's this unusual trajectory where graphic design, because of the web as a layout medium when it first arrives – kind of becomes software design. So like there's a period in like the 90s and 2000s where like what is software design? Well, software design is typography, color, iconography, um, overall visual aesthetics. You have a lot of like alpha transparency everywhere and people trying to like every app looks pretty different. Um, The 90s were like a fairly wild time on the Mac. Um, And so 
uh, for a long time, software design just seems like it's like almost a subset or like a particular expression of graphic design, at least in the web 2.0 era. It felt that way sometimes. And I think the, un- the unfortunate part of that is that a lot of us who came out here in like the 2000s never connected to this very long and super rich history of how humans have been trying to make software and hardware for a long, long time. Um, so for example, um, you know, if you read a book about, uh, you know, the early HCI people at Apple, I took a course, I took a little class with one of them, Tog Nazini, I think is, I, I was, I, I mispronounced his last name, but Tog, um, listening to Tog, 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 talk, uh, <laughs> probably was like, I don't know, getting a debrief from like 500 contemporary designers. He had already been through all of the types of things we do. And he's also been through them at a more abstract level and in like weirder, less supported environments with like much less context and no internet to Google things. And so he has like tremendous methodological insight and he has like a lot of um, experience that's useful and he can share heuristics and ideas and inspiration and all of this. Um, And I I often try to find that in the books that I read. So like I've been reading Idea Factory and I've really enjoyed it a lot. Um, I... Uh, also read a lot of books that have nothing to do with design, but to me seem to flow directly into it. So um, I could never do a podcast without a plug from my favorite all-time book, uh, The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, which for me resolved a lot of the sort of moral and philosophical and epistemological problems of my personal life. And then also is the basis for how I undertake any kind of professional work. And I really love it. I just love the book to death. And what's that basis? Um that the first thing you need to understand is is knowledge. Everything is about, you know, design. People say design is problem solving. And problem solving is the process of generating the most relevant knowledge for a particular problem as quickly and inexpensively as you can or with as high a degree of confidence as possible. Um, so knowledge generation and knowledge management, which in philosophy are called epistemology, um, becomes to me like the first theoretical groundwork for design that I've ever been exposed to. I was very much in the camp of like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I try some different stuff. I got a couple of processes and I can borrow from this pattern, but like broadly speaking, I look at it and I'm like, oh gosh, I hope this works. And then I test it. Um, Deutsch was the first person who really put me on a path where I started thinking about almost everything I do in terms of what don't I know? What do I know? How can I learn what I need to know? or falsify my current theses as quickly as possible and move on to the next. So there's an alignment between the epistemology that he shares, which is ultimately derived, I think, from Karl Popper, um, and agile and iterative methodology. So some of the stuff can seem like a little bit obvious to us, um, but a lot of like kind of the expressions of it and his extensions of it and his applications of it to different things like aesthetics, um, even even things like psychology and um uh, concepts like abstraction, uh, just tremendously empowering and useful for me. Like it really, I, I can't overstate how much I loved the book and how much it changed my life. Now I recommend it to everybody. Uh, David read it um, uh, over at Quora. We've got like half the design team reading it's it. It's a requirement now, actually, if you want to get hired. It's getting to be a requirement. Mm-hmm. It really is. It kind of makes sense for the product itself, right? Like you're passing around knowledge, you should kind of understand I it. Understand what it yeah. means for something to be knowledge. Um, I, like, I'll take a really trivial example. This is like way upstream of the type of stuff most of us ever have to think about. But um, Deutsch proposes this thing he calls, I believe, the momentous dichotomy, where he basically says, the thing to understand about the universe is that every problem you can imagine is soluble unless it is the result of a law of physics. So for example, uh, there are laws of physics that say we can't go faster than the speed of light. And there's no knowledge that will ever change that. That's just the truth. Anything else you can imagine, any other problem, it's simply a question of knowing how to solve it. 
and knowledge can come to you at any time. I think I at least had inherited a sense from from history that like you know sometimes you just had to wait a long time before something could happen. Like mm-hmm. they couldn't have invented planes in the 1400s, right? Well, Deutsch makes this argument that actually that's really not true. Almost all of the evidence that we've needed to assemble, the physical understanding of reality that we have today has been pouring down on Earth since the beginning of Earth. And we have these periods in human history. Uh, you know, he, I think he talks about Socrates. I think he talks about the de' Medici era in Florence where human knowledge just like surges forward. And then usually it gets paused because of some kind of dark ages that result in as a result from a reaction to the knowledge and all the things that it challenges. And right now we're living in the longest sustained era of knowledge generation yet. And what this means is that we should be pretty aggressive in thinking about the problems that we want to solve and what kinds of knowledge we would need to solve them. And he includes everything in this, including the problem of death. And so in, against this framework of problem solving, right, that's sort of like the first triage as a designer that I have is, OK, is this mandated by the laws of physics? If so – I'm going to have to refer you to someone else. And if not, it's just a matter of knowing how. Now, what does it mean to know how? And and how do we actually start to, for example, de-risk the process of building something that will explore how? Um, one last trivial thing that I'll mention because a designer, Nikki, uh, who I work with, uh, said that this landed with her. Um, Deutsch talks a lot about how genes, genetics, um, are the instantiation of knowledge. So uh, a rat lives in a desert and um, – over some number of millennia, um, some of these rats develop slightly different solutions to the problems of, let's say, moisture conservation. They develop thicker skin. Well, the genetic information for how to build thicker skin is the knowledge of how to survive in that environment. It's literally encoded knowledge for how to survive in that environment to a greater degree than the competitor rats who didn't have that skin and who didn't reproduce as well or whatever. Stupid rats. Stupid rats. (laughs) Um, So in that sense, almost everything that you look at is some kind of instantiated knowledge. And as a designer, it's really fun to look around the world and think about what kinds of knowledge are embedded in everything. You know, what did we need to know about metallurgy and plastic formation and ways that things ship and how airplanes work and how transducers work and coils and electricity and how all the everything. And all of this stuff, right, is like compounding knowledge, right? It's all the fact that this microphone works the way it does has a lot to do with how that software can handle what the microphone produces and so on and so forth. And this incredible interrelated compounding effect of knowledge is literally why we think it's important to build a scalable, you know, accessible knowledge database. Um, it actually seems to matter a great deal whether we know how to do things. And they lead to new things. All this knowledge leads to new things in kind of unpredictable ways. And Deutsch is like, really, he, he writes beautifully on a lot of these subjects and themes. And um, I just found it deeply inspiring. A lot of this feels like some of those examples are maybe a little bit abstract. Can we talk about an example from Quora's design process? And one that comes to mind is, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that as social networks get bigger, can I call Quora a social network? Um, you, you can, you can I call, can call Quora it. anything you want. I'm going to call it a social network under the idea that it's people that are connecting and following each other and sharing information. Yeah, I, we, I think it would, I, I don't think I'm overstating this. I think we would consider that part of the product to be really incidental. Okay. Like we would be happy to leave that part of the product behind if there were a better way to accomplish what it accomplishes. Okay. Quora's... <laughs> Products with lots of people on it. Yeah. It seems that with lots of examples that we've been talking about, the quality of the input content goes down as the volume of people goes up. Absolutely. So you can think of any forum, social networks. It's, it's like when you start hiring from like one to 10 and they're like super high end and then you get to like mm-hmm. 650 and it's like a clusterfuck. That's right. Yeah. So it's this degrading over time as quantity increases. And I'm wondering... How would you apply some of these thinkings of 
knowledge gathering and other things that I still need to process. Sure. Um, do, how do we solve the problem of like quality, but quality that's scaling and growing really fast around the world on the internet, which historically has been a place has not worked. trolling and shit. Yeah. And it's hard. Um, it's why the job is hard. Um, so one of the reasons I like to always frame the job in the context of software design is that I think people who are joining Quora should feel approximately like someone joining um, uh, Apple at the time when it was command line and being told, hey, if you, if you, if you join, we're going to figure out how to make this democratically accessible to everybody. And the fruition of that literally not coming until the iPhone, right? The Mac was too expensive and it was actually still very, very hard to use, just better than anything else. Um, so it's, it's a lot of things have to be solved for us to solve these problems, these, which a lot of them do relate to scale. Um, so to give an example, let me think, uh, we, first off, it's absolutely the case that you get more bad quality as more people join. You also get more good stuff too. So if your system is good enough at understanding what different people think is good or bad. Uh, the scaling of the bad quality content actually does not constitute a problem. So um, I'll take myself as an example. I have a Quora feed uh, as Quora has, I guess in the time that I've been using Quora, it's like, like I don't know, 8X or 10X in size or something like that. Um, I don't see more bad content. I only see more good content. And that's because I, as a pretty heavy Quora user, have given the system so much signal as to what I care about. I care about prose quality. I care about answer formatting. I care about the credentials of authors and whether they have relevant topic expertise. I tend not to upvote short, sarcastic, stupid garbage answers. And I tend to upvote like substantive evidentiary answers. And I upvote like this cohort of users, but I Sometimes in a different topic, I upvote like this cohort of users and all that. So now the system knows me pretty well, such that my feed is never not high quality. It's only sometimes not super relevant. So for example, I might open the feed and it might show me um, I do get an awful lot of aviation content because I was I'm highly responsive to aviation content. <laughs> so my 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 lower order brain is literally like destroying my higher order brain's life because every time I open it, I go, oh man, more plane answers. Whoa, what happened to this plane? And then I'm in it, and the system's going, boy, he loves this stuff. <laughs> he, so he can't get enough. <laughs> he can't get enough, and I can't. Um, so uh, basically, we view the problem of um, scaling as approximately like the normal problem of quality filtering. And uh, moderation is the same. We do expect more harassers and more abuse and more norm collisions. We're working on product features that we think will ameliorate some of that um, in different ways. We have a lot of, this is an area of like pretty active interest for us and is probably the area in which we're doing the most um, kind of strategic exploratory work. Uh, so we'll see what comes of that in the next year or two. Um, but broadly speaking, uh, we believe that any truly scaled knowledge library that really has everything that anyone in the world knows will almost always need or will always need to be so personalized to you that the challenge will never be making sure that Quora in aggregate is good. It will always be making sure that your Quora is good and your Quora is good. Um, you know, one way you can sort of think about this is if you imagined a library of Alexandria, but that actually included everything anyone knew, it would be, you know, the size of like several states. It would be completely physically non-traversable. What you would need is a librarian and not just one who could tell you, oh yeah, sure, you're interested in aviation, you said? Well, the books are over there. But a librarian who knew you knew your research program or knew your life or what you cared about, knew, th knew that you were into gardening and had you just showed up with a book on geraniums. Yeah. So our feed is that. Um, our feed is the attempt to personalize the knowledge that we think you're most interested in and responsive to um, 
you know, weighed against some ecosystem goals, like making sure that questions get enough distribution and things of that nature. The big topic around personalization from the last year has been filter bubbles. Oh, oh, oh my God. We should have started with that. Please. I have the hottest take on filter bubbles. Oh God. Cool. Help me out. Filter bubbles don't exist. Talk to me. There is no such thing as a filter bubble. I cannot believe the traction that this concept has gotten. Well, I've already hyperbolized my claim. Let me step it back. <laughs> I went as hot as it could get. I tried to go as hot as no, I, I, I wanted to, to cool start down. as hot as I could. Cool okay. down. What is relevant in the conversation about whether software winds up creating these filter bubbles is the delta between software and the world that preceded software. So I want to think about, like, let's say 1975. Um, if you were born in Gadsden, Alabama, the odds are pretty good that you would never know anybody not from Gadsden, Alabama, and that you would get all of your news and information from the local preacher, the AM radio station, and the local broadcast, and the local paper, which might have extraordinarily unusual views and might not report anything of uh, the time that would challenge you or make you grow or diversify. You might never meet anyone who is very different from you, but more to the point, you certainly wouldn't regularly encounter people who are substantively different from mm -hmm. you in every way. You might not even ever see a person of color, let's say. Gadsden's a bad example for that, as is Alabama generally. But you, you still have this problem in rural areas. Like I come from Minnesota. Like I know. You know how insular it can get. Yes. So this is what cracks me up, right? Is that people then look, well, first off, the filter bubble idea, I believe started with search results. That was the original context. And then they moved it to Facebook. Oh, Facebook creates filter bubbles. The reason we think the internet creates filter bubbles is because it doesn't. That is, we regularly encounter communities that we find so stupid and hateful that we can only imagine they result from a filter bubble. And so we say, look at these poor idiots stuck in a filter bubble. They all believe, let's say, I'll just use this as an example. They all believe all this conservative news. What a filter bubble. It's so sad. If only they had access to the information I have. Right. Your ideally diverse information diet, which somehow just <laughs> emerged naturally. Isn't that odd that you have the right mixture of information sources and yet anyone who disagrees with you is trapped in some kind of bubble and too stupid to see out of it. What's especially amusing about this is that the reason we know these people exist is that we get into fights with them on the internet constantly and we see them fighting with other people on the internet. So the reason you know there's a conservative filter bubble is that you've seen a New York Times story posted and then you've seen all these dumb filter bubble people arguing in the comments. How much of a filter bubble is it then if you're seeing them and they're seeing the New York Times? I actually, in other words, I think that the reason we think filter bubbles are worst on Facebook is because there are almost no filter bubbles on Facebook. Your graph is entirely composed of people who you are either related to or worked with, which is not a selection process that selects for ideology. Where we don't think we see filter bubbles is Twitter. Who do you follow on Twitter? People you agree with people who are like you. So we naturally go to Facebook and go, oh my God, the evidence is overwhelming. So many people with such bad opinions. The only thing that could account for this is that they actually never learn the truth. Sad. Filter bubbles must be behind it. It's too bad they're not like me. Meanwhile, on Twitter, we go, well, thank God this has no filter bubbles. I can tell because they're none of those idiots who actually think that X happened or that Y is a legitimate news source. That cracks me up endlessly. But isn't that the problem is that People think they're identifying other filter bubbles when they themselves are in the filter bubble to everyone else. I actually think that the problem is there's no such thing as a filter bubble. A filter bubble is a description Maybe, uh, of yeah, information. Yeah, we need to describe or yeah. define this thing first so we're talking about the same thing. So a filter bubble basically is when you've been cohorted by software in some way or another such that you never see anything from outside of that particular cohort. Already, if we make that definition, I think most of us who work in software will go, well, shit, you know, cohorts really aren't that good. I don't think I've ever really, like, would I ever bet my life on a cohort's accuracy? Probably okay. not. But I would when bet you just... Facebook's advertising business model on it. Outside of computer, cohort right. isn't used to describe good things. 
Uh, it's usually like a gang of goons, right? Like, <laughs> okay. Um, maybe we just call them call them gangs. These are gangs or gang <laughs> bubbles. Um, uh, how many ads do you not click on on Facebook? All of them, right? So it doesn't seem like maybe you would want to bet that ad business on it, right? Like Facebook probably has much more signal on you <laughs> than it does on most people. And it's still not enough to predict what you'll want. But so, I, I take the point is like you said, you know, your friends likely to be friends with family and coworkers and people that are geographically near you. So the third. Sometimes, yeah, if you've moved, yeah. Does that not itself filter for ideology see, but see here's what we're this, okay this is so exciting for i'm me. so oh glad God, you're literally talking, talking about, about this. like i'm literally real world <laughs> problems not computer problems that's right so what you're saying is there's a risk that facebook by cohorting you only with the people that you've met uh worked with are related to or have lived near is going to create a situation where you have some kind of uh, information isolation that will prevent you from getting like a full picture of reality Compared what to what you, you no, 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 no. Right, that's I'm your saying, real life. I'm saying that the things that I interact with are more likely to be the things that I agree with, and therefore over time it will filter out things that I don't agree with from people that are still in my network. Okay, that's a okay. That's true. Now, do you think that happens in real life? Yeah, it does. Right. Uh-huh. So if you've ever if you've got that one buddy who's always like, "Yo, man, I want to talk to you about this," and you're just like, "God, I really hate it when he Pizza brings Gate. this up." Let's talk about Pizzagate. Right. <laughs> and you're just like, "I can't do this again." And he sees your body language and he sees that you're like not that into it. And maybe it takes two or three times, or maybe you finally have to go. Look, I am not talking about Pizzagate. But eventually, you actually push it out. Now, do you feel when you tell him you don't want to talk about Pizzagate anymore that your information diet has suddenly become insufficiently mixed? Probably not. You probably feel like you, as a judicious, agential human being, have made a determination that something's not interesting to you and you don't need to hear more about it. But that's the problem, right? Well, let me ask you this. How you got it? Do you use Facebook? Yeah. Use Twitter? Yeah. More? Which one do you use more? Twitter. How many jihadis and Wahhabists are in your Twitter timeline? Zero. Why? Don't you want to have like a mixture of points of view and diverse perspectives? It just seems like you're in a filter bubble. All I'm saying is- I'm not disagreeing with you. You're that, in though. a non-Wahhabist filter bubble, and I've got some people I want you to follow. They advocate beheading women who've committed adultery, but like you should be open to that point of view. If you're not, it's a little bit like you're in kind of a closed-minded community, right? Probably. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. You're right. You already know that- uh, But that's the- No, 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 no. What you just said, that's the problem is, oh, I'm right. Yes, you are right. I'm right. But you're using a crazy extreme example. Oh, people that behead people, clearly fucking wrong, right? But the but people- there's, there's, there's norm collision. There's much yes, more nuanced the thing is, things that the, I say, oh, I'm right because uh, I believe myself to be right. Therefore, I will reject all these other totally valid opinions because it's a norm collision. Well, well, but totally valid is a statement yeah, right there, whoa, whoa, bud. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> whoa, we're, not, we're talking about non-beheading stuff. Like, right, right, right. Um, Let's use think- on gun control. Okay, so let me ask you something. Kay. Do you actually think- that there is something I could say that would reverse whatever your current opinion is on gun control. I would hope I'm open-minded enough to change change my opinion <laughs> given just, new evidence. But that's Brian, just aspirational open-mindedness. Totally. <laughs> um, so, so, okay, right. So if you, if you do have this high ideal that you should always be open to any kind of information, um, then yes, it's true. Whatever path you no, 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 chart- No, 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 not open th- to any kind of information. Open information you disagree your- with. Or having your beliefs challenged. Yes, yes. Um, I'm actually skeptical of the value 
of this. So in other words, one way I put this is I think people sort themselves pretty successfully into categories on their own without any of us needing to do it for them. I think a lot of people know how much value they'll derive from self-challenging or from opinion challenging. And a lot of people know that they're not that interested in it. I would bet that everybody in this room actually would be extremely excited to have a really, really substantive evidentiary article written about why um, Wahhabism is the right way to structure the world's societies and why it's like the best. And you would read it and you'd be like, I disagree with it or I don't disagree with it, but you would actually find that probably pretty intellectually edifying. A lot of people don't find uh, violations of the norms that they believe in to be particularly edifying. I'll just give a very trivial and common example. Almost any religious believer is not interested in being made fun of. And almost anybody who's making fun of them will probably think that that's because they're closed-minded. And the truth is, no one is interested in being made fun of for the things that they believe that matter deeply to them. Um, so if, for example, if I, I use this, I've used this example in like six core answers, I think. If I went to an atheist's wedding and uh, part of the vows, maybe one of them said to the other, um, I knew when I met you that you were the one for me. And I jumped up and I said, hold on, hold on. There are 7 billion people on the planet. What do you think the odds really are that genetically speaking, this person is so identical that they're quote, the one for you, which is like a pretty dubious category or concept. I think like, obviously you just are exaggerating the degree to which you have confidence about this person. Am I right? They probably wouldn't be like, oh God, golly, thank you for challenging some of these latent mystical assumptions. They would be offended and hurt. And, and suitably so. And so I, I just, knew you were the person I liked the most at a convenient time for me socially <laughs> in that it's like the I socially acceptable time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I basically met you while I was running out of steam and this is all going to line up perfectly. Um, I wanted to deal with this now and get out of the way. So <laughs> you're the right one. Cool. Yeah. So I don't know. I, you know, like I said at the beginning, I like to overstate these takes wildly. Um, but one thing I do feel very confidently is almost no reading of the United States or the world would possibly suggest that people's informational diets are less diverse today than they were 20 years ago. I would be stunned at anything in, in any vector. Every conservative, every liberal is online and all they're reading about and all they're doing is reacting to what the, their opposites are doing. That's the last funny wrinkle to me about this is that people will often be like, well, conservatives are in this filter bubble. They never even hear that the New York Times has this super slick typographical page of all of Donald Trump's lies. But that's actually not true because Breitbart will literally run some bullshit story at the top of their site that's like, New York Times invents yet more lies about Donald Trump. So uh, Jonathan Haidt did some really good research on this where he basically asked people to imagine and predict and explain their opponent's point of view. And it turns out people aren't very bad at this. Like people are pretty good at it. Conservatives are actually slightly better at it than liberals are because I think conservative media is pretty obsessed with liberal positions and with like, you know, vilifying it. And that's like the same thing as being exposed to it. So it's funny because it actually turns out that uh, on the internet today, I think more people have more exposure to more diverse points of view and more diverse kinds of humans from all over the world than any any time before in human history. I don't think it's even close. Um, I think it's no longer possible to live in the small town. It's actually getting pretty hard, right? Like, uh, you know, that one cousin you have who went off to state school and decided that they were going to join PETA and blow up animal laboratories, they're posting. And now your grandmother sees that. She sees all of these things. She sees all the arguments, all the comments, threads. It is true that over time, feed may start to try to like, mostly produce things that she likes. But feed really works by engagement. And as you probably know, um, hate reading produces extremely high engagement. Like people are more reactive to things that make them angry. They don't close. This is the magic of Facebook reactions, right? Now you can respond angrily. Yeah, right. And what's funny is I, I always assumed that we were going to like 
rank with that, right? We'd be like, well, okay, this is something everybody gets angry about. Let's not show it. Not apparently. Well, that's, let's show more of it. Yeah, let's show more of it is probably more effective strategy. Um, so I guess I just at a high level, the concern about filter bubbles is this diminution in uh, overall you know, informational diver uh, diversity among people. And I think that like the actual information diversity chart is like this, you know, if that's, that's left to right, it's this is straight a, up. Another gesture. Yeah. Straight up. Let's go back. So we brought up filter bubbles because we were talking about personalization because we were talking about feeds and now we've brought in this new element of divisive things mm -hmm. and nasty things get more engagement. Mm -hmm. And you've already that you said that your feed is learning about you by engagement. So, our feed, yeah, uh, engagement's not our only thing. Okay, we we're lucky in the sense that we have other things that we weigh. Okay, and other things that we can weigh. <laughs> well, I guess that dispels that. I guess then I'm looking at other places where oh, it's good to post the most divisive thing. It's it's a problem for us. I mean, to be clear, we engagement isn't the only thing. But, but, it's a, thing. but it's a major thing. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, you know, if you have like 900 signals that your machine learning system is like looking at 900, 900 features, you know, um, the engagement signals really, really outperform, you know, like, in other words, like it's we have to fight against the nature of the machine learning systems to make sure that they're not, for example, just producing and ranking clickbait very highly um, because it works. But again, it works in that short-term sense that we talked about, right? Like you'll, you know, you'll get more engagement for like six months and then everybody will hate your product. Um, incidentally, I often think that this is actually exactly what happened with Facebook and Snapchat was that there would have been no way for Facebook to understand that all of its metrics increasing was masking something horrible, unless they were really serious about listening to their users. Users always said, I don't like that everything lasts forever. I don't like having a profile that people can stalk. I don't like being publicly searchable. I don't like not understanding what's happening. I don't like having to think about whether all my content's good enough. All these things, right? If, if we had listened to that, we might have addressed it. But all we saw were the metrics, and the metrics looked great. And Abhinav, who I mentioned earlier, uh, proposed a wonderful framework for thinking about this. If you've read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he said, look, the bottom line is engagement metrics track system one behavior, right? I open the phone. I'm in bed. I see a badge. I click it. I tap it. I scroll, 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 scroll until I see a video that's so shocking that I stop on the video. Facebook has just learned that I love Facebook. It's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning and I just scroll, I just pass 17 stories and I love this video. The truth is the video upsets me. I hated the whole experience and my system one brain did it while my system two brain was like waking up. And then as soon as it's awake, it's like, dude, you didn't want to look at Facebook. Like, can you please get out of bed? And you're like, right, boom. Over time, system two brain says, I hate Facebook, while system one brain just uses it more and more and more, which is why there's this incredible phenomenon where every quarter Facebook announces that like people are spending an additional, you know, minute or hour or whatever of their day on Facebook. And yet you never meet anybody who seems to like Facebook. And then when Snapchat launches, all of a sudden, 300 million people are on it. Where did they come from? They came from the gap between system one and system two as Facebook's metrics allowed it to drift. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I'm super interested in like the engagement traps that we create for ourselves with these types of metrics. Ultimately, we can't measure system two phenomena very well. Um, not just software companies, anyone. Like your shrink cannot perform a test to see whether you're happy 
which is like an incredible fact. And so if you want to know whether people are happy with or satisfied your product with your product, all you can do is ask them. Um, and usually people don't give super accurate responses to those kinds of questions. Um, it, so you can see why you'd gravitate back to those metrics. They're so substantive and they're so defensible. They're there, you know, they're real. And yet you can game the hell out of people's attention directing apparatus until it seems like they absolutely love your software and then one day they all walk out the door. Um, and I think that's what really was concerning to Facebook about Snapchat for a long time until Instagram stories. How do you identify if you're in this engagement trap? Where I'm, not, I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> you thought something that was important that you want to track is going up and to the right. Mm -hmm. um, I think one thing is, and, and this is like way easier said than done, but like, you know, take people seriously. If everyone in the entire world is saying, boy, I really like your product, but I don't like how it makes me publicly exposed to the potential uh, historical judgment of future hiring managers. Um, don't just look at the engagement data and say, well, if they really believe that this number wouldn't be going up and to the right. So they must not know what they're talking about. Let's make profile into a timeline in which you're supposed to put every single event that you've ever lived in a long like infographic so that anyone can quickly tell whether you're a winner or a loser. <laughs> um, there are other responses, right? Like I, I used to fantasize all the time when I was at Facebook, like, you know, what if, what if we just got rid of profile? I mean, that's not a serious suggestion. Hey, profile team, I don't mean that. Um, <laughs> I love profile. I grew my profile. You can all keep your jobs, I promise. Um, but like those would be the kinds of things that would take those concerns seriously. Um, I think there's a ton of things in these, in these buckets for Quora as well. And we literally do on a weekly basis have these discussions. Well, does this metric mean X or does it mask Y mm -hmm. or is it the kind of number that we can move? We have a lever to move, but actually we're just sort of deluding ourselves about the reality behind those numbers. Um, that it's a fixation. Like the hardest part. Yes. Yes. It totally is. Yeah. Which leads me to my next question is you post a lot on Quora. Are you right? Quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And some of the things you've been writing about recently are much more personal and seem like introspective and talking about mental disorders and mm -hmm. bipolarism. Is that the right? Bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder. Uh, why do you do that? It's funny. That was one of the questions I got on the, I did a little why? taking questions session on Quora and somebody was like, why do you talk about this in public? Um, my parents have asked me that question too. Uh, Especially because you said you don't want to be in a room full of lots of people, but you're putting your personality and like brain on the internet. Um, I think there's like... Uh, so the main reason I think actually, and this is like a kind of a disappointing reason, is just that by habit, I've always been pretty open. I, and, I, and I don't think this has to do anything with like um, confidence. It's more, and this sounds impossible, but it's more that in the flow of interactions and writing, it really never occurs to me to not say something that's relevant or interesting. And so um, it's just, I don't have a ton of like secrets. Like if it's going to be relevant or meaningful or useful, it's probably just going to spill out. So I think everything that I'm going to say from now on is going to be a rationalization of what's essentially a natural <laughs> personality defect pop, uh, probably. Um, so the second batch of reasons is I got diagnosed pretty young. Uh, it runs in my family. I grew up in an environment where nobody seemed to feel any sense of like shame or anxiety about it. And pretty early on, I also learned that if I tell people about it, um, some of my behaviors are more intelligible. Um, so for example, actually a really fun example, uh, last week, uh, we were having a little writing workshop at the company and I'm, I'm, I committed a little social snafu. I said something the wrong way. It was totally a trivial error and it upset me so much that I had to excuse myself from the writing workshop, like voice quavering. 
excuse me, and then go up to the top of the stairwell to cry for like five minutes. And then I come back to the workshop. You know, my eyes are all red. You know, I probably look like hell. Um, Everybody there knows I have bipolar disorder. So nobody is especially uh, anxious about what this would mean. They all sort of assume, oh, Mills has like, you know, minor mood swings and Mills seems to be like over sentimental or just like Mills seems to be crazy. Um, And so I actually think I get some degree of anxiety reduction from knowing that my behaviors will be interpreted in an accurate context. Um, So that's like one big benefit. Um, And then it's also just like, you know, it's interesting to me. It's, you know, most of us are vain enough to find the function of our own minds, like endlessly kind of interesting and bipolar (laughs) totally dominates my life. I mean, it's like, I have to take a huge amount of medicine for it. It's like never going to go away. It constrains a lot of things that I would choose to do um, or that I might choose to do. So yeah, just kind of a natural fertile subject that um, people seem to sometimes enjoy talking about. And there doesn't seem to be any cost. Uh, I, I mentioned this also in one of the answers on Quora, but um, a huge and important caveat here is basically that if you're a cis white male, uh, especially one who presents in the way I do, typically mental illness gets interpreted in a very positive light. So um, I've probably had a few people or companies pass on me for being bipolar in public about it. I think more commonly people say things like, God dang, that's that's really brave, man. That's really cool. Or they say, um, well, you're creative. You know, creative people are often troubled. Um, I'm not very creative. It's a huge bummer. I would love to be more creative. I'm much crazier than I am creative. Um, <laughs> but I get the benefit of those sort of cultural memes, right? Like the the existence of the idea of like, uh, you know, a beautiful mind and all of that is like, oh, well, Mills must just be, uh, you know, bipolar and temperamental and maybe slightly artistic. And I've been getting the benefit of that uh, meme since I was in high school. And so it was never super costly for me to disclose it. Um, I have a relative who's female. And when I, when I, when she found out that I was really public about it, um, she was pretty horrified. And she told me a lot of stories about the way that she got treated for it, which were quite different, right? Like, um, first off, she never found a stable cocktail of meds. So for her, it was never really under management. Second off, um, people are very, very happy and quick to assume that um, a woman is uh, perhaps too emotional or too hysterical. And having a bipolar diagnosis can give them some degree of like substantive, you know, uh, force behind that accusation. Like, well, boy, Linda, real nut, you know? And so I, I often have to mention that just because I don't want to imply that like the f- – so basically being public with it was easy for me. I don't think it's easy for most people. That's not because I'm – like brave because I'm not. Uh, it's because it it just like happened to break that way for me. Um, and then probably the last thing is I talk about it because there is some small but non-trivial number of people out there who have bipolar or depression, anxiety issues, maybe even like schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, um, who reach out to me and and like to talk about it or like to ask about whether they can go into tech or what would be a good career for them. And so, you know, if anybody's out there, it turns out you can hold down a job for at least a couple of years, even with this thing. <laughs> Proof. Proof. Uh, That is one of the things that also interests me very much about Quora is that, um, you know, typically when I say to people, hey, we're trying to build this like structured, democratic, accessible database for human knowledge, they say, well, isn't that the internet? And I say, well, that's (laughs) yes, but here's the problem, right? Um, There are like a billion serious, serious flaws with what you might call the IA of the internet. It's not easy to assess the credibility of any piece of content. It's not easy to determine whether that content is relevant to like your interests. You can't figure out the, you know, the CV of the author. Flexbox um, is hard. Flexbox <laughs> is fucking hard. Um, it's very hard to share your own knowledge, um, uh, abusement, harass, all of these, uh, harassment, all of these things. So um, the other part of this though, that I 
so usually people can get on board with that. They'll be like, yeah, I see. Okay, so it'd be much better if like every blog post, Google knew what it was about, how, whether it was high quality and whether I liked it. Then I would always be only getting the things that are like best for me. Um, but there's a second part of this that's like more interesting to me by far, which is that a lot of knowledge is not facts, you know, and people don't really understand this. Um, cultural knowledge is often very wrong, right? Cultural knowledge is often wrong and and yet vital. So uh, scientific knowledge can be this way too. So a great, a great example that I borrowed from David Deutsch is, um, you know, Isaac Newton was wrong about everything. None of that shit's right. None of Newton's work is right. None of it. It turns out that's all completely fucking wrong. This is not how reality works. Reality is actually made up of quantum mechanical phenomena that don't act anything like Newtonian predictions. And Newton is wrong. He's not Oh, well, that's the older theory. His theories make statements that are wrong. Um, what's incredible about that is that his theories also made statements that let us build cathedrals and airplanes and boats and a lot of other things. And uh, in other words, his statements were both predictively useful, true in a provisional way, and yet ultimately false because of this progressive quality that science has of invalidating previous knowledge. Um, we tend to think of that as always just being like invalidating a really shitty theory. But the truth is that's going to happen to Einstein too and quantum mechanics and everything else. And all of our opinions and beliefs will be subsumed by better, deeper, or more abstract beliefs as we improve knowledge in pretty much every field. What that means is that a system like Wolfram Alpha, right, which really only wants to think about hard factual truth, um, is not going to capture even close to a meaningful percentage of the human knowledge that matters. Yo, um, it's great at math, though. It is fucking great at math. But if you're like bipolar, I think about this a lot. Like, uh, I would have loved to have asked in 1994, what is a good career for someone with bipolar? Because I thought that there were no careers for people like that because we're nuts. And so I, I just sort of punted on the question. Um, it turns out there are answers to that. Um, now, which of those answers are useful is not something that I will ever be able to program a computer to understand in terms of a deterministic list. Only answers from people who are X, only things that have this quality. The truth is there's always going to be a social component, whether I relate to whether how the person describes bipolar or their experience or what their proposed career solution is or anything like that. So in other words, <laughs> abstractly, uh, knowledge is always socially mediated. And what knowledge is useful is always a function of social mediation. And so Quora has to be this socially mediated, evolving database of human knowledge that uses social signals in order to figure out what's important. That's the only way we can come up with to actually try to solve this problem. Otherwise, we think we're going to continue to see just like huge quantities of lost knowledge fragmented in broken forums and dead links and, you know, Twitter from 2007 and, and all of these things, these places where knowledge and information go to die. And so I just always like to mention the mental health, the mental health angle, because um, it's a good example of a category where there's both a tremendous amount of vital knowledge that could save lives and help people a lot. And yet there's also no knowledge because no one knows what bipolar disorder is. No one has a theory of what it is or depression or anxiety. Uh, there's no such thing as a chemical imbalance. We thought that was the deal for a while. Turns out that's not true. Can't see it. Most of these things on PET scans don't know which medicines will work. None of this field of psychiatry is actually all that factual. Like we just don't know. We're doing our best. We have aggregate, uh, we, we aggregate symptoms into clusters and we give those names. This is bipolar disorder. I guarantee in 50 years, it won't be called bipolar disorder. It used to be called manic depression and they changed the name, they changed the name. So this type of knowledge that's provisional, but vital is a kind of knowledge where it's still important to be able to assess credibility and still important to distribute to the right people with the right levels of sophistication for whatever the given explanation or answer is. And that's what Quora wants to be able to do. And we don't really see anybody else trying to do that. Is one of the big conversations happening in my <clears throat> filter bubble 
<laughs> if I can say that. In in the the news sources that I follow is the problem of closed garden internet yes. becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. If you look at the big companies like the Facebooks, the Googles, uh, the Apples, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Uh, especially with like Google AMP um, would be, be the most clear example lately. I mean, the Apple like, App Store. I mean, uh, all these things is, uh, but especially as it relates to information on the internet being mm-hmm. open. What's, I don't know if you can speak for Quora, but what's your stance on that of aggregating all of this stuff in one company's data center? Um, well, so uh, I'll, I'll address the core part first. Um, there's never, n- there would never be any prohibition against cross-posting. Post anything you post on Quora anywhere well, you want. Of course not. You could say the same thing about any social network. That's true, but it's true of any social network. So uh, when I think of walled gardens, um, I tend to think there needs to be some element of inescapability or compulsion. And I don't actually know that, for example, in Apple's case, there's really inescapability or compulsion. Um, a lot of people, for one of the things I've heard a lot out here about iOS is people say, well, you're locked in. You know, once you're in, they've got your photos, they've got your mail, they've got everything. You're never leaving iOS. And man, the people this- I know in the world, they, they leave at the drop of a hat. They can't remember what their photos were. I mean, who keeping the, you know, you know what I mean? Like, so I actually, and so I guess I'm incoherently sort of um, saying all of these walled gardens have competitors and the real open world is the world outside of all of them. You know, Facebook is not a walled garden of the internet. Facebook is a part. It's like a little tiny part of the internet. Snapchat is a part. Instagram is a part. The open web, as they call it, is a part. Um, there does seem to be this thing. I, you know, I, I just saw John Gruber made the argument that Facebook is making the web worse somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm amazed. Actually, you know what? Finally, oh my god, you get I've, been, it. I've been waiting to do this for hot my take, entire life. Hot yeah, take. come on. I've been waiting to go on a podcast and say what I think about some of Gruber's takes for a long Perfect. time. Perfect. The idea that an Apple fanboy would write that Facebook is hurting the open web makes me sick with amusement. I could pass out. I want to laugh so hard. This is a guy who, for the entire 1990s, took every punch to the face from a PC advocate advocating for open standards and interoperability and open source software and said, give me a fucking break, you Linux nerds. You think that the UX of what you're producing is good enough? Fuck you. A closed proprietary system that outperforms your bullshit open ideological stance is going to win, and it should. And now he's complaining that Facebook, which is the platform, by the way, that makes the internet accessible to a substantial plurality of that 1.8 billion people who otherwise wouldn't be online. And by the way, people who follow links out of newsfeed, go to other websites, download apps from ads, see tons of web views, have Safari or Chrome installed on the goddamn device that they got for Facebook that he thinks that Facebook is hurting the open web to me is just illustrative of the fact that you pretty much only dislike in your opponents what you dislike in yourself. And what I dislike in Gruber is that he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about before he starts talking because that's what I do. <laughs> so that's my Gruber rant. Oh. And I, I'm actually pretty, I'm like, that was fucking brilliant. Has the wow. web ever seemed like more vital than it does today to y'all? It doesn't seem in any way diminished to me. Now, often what this is about, by the way, is like how much money are New York City publishers making? which is a completely, to me, that's like a very uh, parochial issue. I want everybody in the world to be able to sustain their livelihood, but that's not actually like at the level of is Facebook harming the open web to me. Fair. What book are you reading right now? 
uh, uh, finishing uh, the Ideas Factory. And, oh, yeah, yeah, um, you mentioned that. Let's see. I read a Gore Vidal novel before that called Creation that was really, really good. And then uh, I think before that, The Constitution of Liberty by Hayek. And that was pretty good, too. Cool. We always like then by asking what keeps you up at night. What does keep me up at night? I'm always really worried that I won't do a good job. Um, I'm like, this is my dream job. You know, Core is the company that I, I've wanted to be at forever. And being there, it's like, I don't want to mess it up. So I worry a lot about that. I worry about my reports, how they're doing, um, you know, whether whether I'm doing everything I should be doing for them, you know? Um, I worry somewhat occasionally about, you know, how we're going to execute on certain parts of the strategy that seem really challenging to me. Um, I often worry that I'll be inadequate to the challenges that result from the strategy or from the from the, the near-term work to be done. Um, I worry enormously about uh, <laughs> about my family and about, you know, personal friends and, and, and people like that. Um, that's usually what – so if I'm up at night, which is rare, um, it's extremely rare. I usually go right the hell to sleep. If I'm awake, it's probably worrying about some combination of those things. Thanks so much for coming to hang out. Today. This was fantastic. Thank Thanks, you. y'all. Appreciate it. <laughs> Very fun. That was episode 207. It was 1.5 times the content. It's extremely good content. So it's at least two times the value. But 10 You're x, welcome. 10x the fun easily. We hope you enjoyed that episode with Mills. Uh, if you did, let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. Come join us in our community on spectrum.chat slash specfm we've been working our butts off to make this thing really good for people like you before we go be sure to check out our sponsors uh these are companies that literally make this entire podcast possible in this case they made this extra long episode possible thank you to shopify they're trying to hire you let them hire you already they are looking for designers, content strategists, researchers, and UX leads. They're trying so hard. Just let them hire you. To join a team of over 180 folks in the UX org at Shopify uh, that's serving more than 400,000 merchants around the world. That's a lot of merchants. That's a lot of merchants. That's a lot of merch. That, both. So, mu- so many merch. I'm going to need your help. Go to shopify.com slash careers if you're looking for a new gig. If you're looking for some good reading and learnings. Go to ux.shopify.com. If you're looking for some good gigs, go to shopify.com slash careers. I literally just said. But I just said it more. Google Shopify and then apply and then tell them that Design Detail sent you. There. Thanks, Shopify. (laughs) Thank you for your graciousness, Shopify. Second sponsor is ReadyDesk and maybe we won't screw this one up. ReadyDesk is, hang on, you're not going to believe this. The desk you're ready for. It's a standing desk. And what it's going to do... What's the difference between that and a normal desk? Well, you stand up to use it, which has a few benefits. I stand up and hunch over my desk. This is a null point. Bad idea. So the thing that's ready desk solves is, first, crappy posture. If you're standing up straight, looking straight ahead at your computer, you're going to pull your shoulders back. You're going to let your chest open up. You're going to feel a whole lot better. It's a bit prescriptive. You start to breathe a little bit better. What that does is help you focus more. You're going to have a better mood, right? Through that, you're going to reduce your risk of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. This is science, folks. Pure, raw, unadulterated, standing desk science. And ReadyDesk is going to make it possible for you. They're going to make it affordable. Uh, it's an awesome product that we have here in the studio. Basically, you assemble it on your own. And you can put it on top of any table. And then 
take it off when you're done, which means you don't have to take a ton of room wherever you might be living. You can use it on any table you want. So you can take it places with you, travel with it. It comes in a little flat pack and you can disassemble it at any time, reassemble it. It stores flat. That's pretty great, especially in a small space, especially like ours in San Francisco. You should get it. Go to thereadydesk.com. That's thereadydesk.com. If you use the promo code DESIGN at checkout, you'll get 10 bucks off your order. And if you don't like it for whatever reason, they have a 100-day free return policy. So really, there's no risk. Tons of reward. You're going to feel better. We've been on that standing desk kick for on a that few months grind. now. And it feels amazing. Can't recommend it enough. Again, that's it, thereadydesk.com. Use the promo code DESIGN. Thanks once again to ReadyDesk. We'll see you next week.